You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on his yoke. We are pressing into his promise of true life. Good morning. Peace be with you. Also with you. Praise God. My name is James Fields. I serve as the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church Carlisle. So good to be with you uh, this glorious morning. Amen. Uh, We're going to continue with our uh, series in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at a shorter verse, um, but that might not mean you you still get out early, so we'll see. Uh, But here we go, Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. It says this, At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, And I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we do thank you and praise you for um, this fact that, God, you call us to you as we are. God, we don't have to pretend. We don't have to make things up. We don't have to act like we have it all together. We can use simply call us and beckon us to come. So, Father, we come to you even now. We come to you in our brokenness, God. We come to you in our uncertainty. We come to you in our weariness and even in our burden. We come to you with our joy and with our happiness. We come to you in, in love, and we come to you knowing, God, that you are the only one that can provide us rest. So, Father, would you provide rest right now from the preaching of your word? Take my little and make much of it as you always do. Glorify yourself, Father, that some soul may be saved. Uh, and my, some mind may uh, change, change his ways to look to Jesus afresh and anew, even today. Do this for the glory of your name and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm sorry, I should say this is the word of the Lord. As you can tell, your pastor's a little frazzled today. It's been a busy week, so if this is not one of my best sermons, charge my head and not my heart, Um, but pray for me. I've asked certain people to pray for me this week uh, because it's been a crazy week, but the Lord is my strength. He's my rest. Um, As much as I'm preaching this to you guys, I'm preaching it to myself. Amen? Amen. Listen to verse 25 again. It says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. I remember the day like it was almost yesterday. I was in college. I accepted my calling at 19 years old. And uh, after my freshman year at, at, at Central Michigan University, I accepted my calling to preach God's word. And I was excited. Um, But I wasn't an ordinary freshman in that I was advantageous. Um, I was taking high-level classes in my major because I thought I wanted to go into health administration. 
And I came within um, this, this problem of what do I do? I feel called to the ministry, but I'm so ingrained. I've already taken three, four, five classes in my major of health administration. I didn't want to have an extra year. So I had the bright idea of taking a class. This class was called the Bible as Literature. It was a great class. I thought it was going to be a Sunday school class, actually. But when I came to the class, the first thing the professor told me was, this is not a Sunday school class. He said, we, he said we're going to look at the Bible, but we're not going to look at it for how, uh, if you're a Christian here, I don't want to hear what you have to say about your Christian faith. All I want to hear about is what the, what, what, to see the Bible as narrative and simply as a story. And we read it as such. We read it as such. I remember specifically looking at one passage with, um, in Deuteronomy chapter 9 with Moses and Moses interceding before God on behalf of the people of God because the people of God have gone astray. And pretty much God said, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to destroy the people. And Moses comes up and says, no, no, don't destroy the people um, because these are the people you, you say, these are the people you love, and these are the people whom um, are serving you. Don't, don't destroy them. And I remember in class having this big debate about why would God want to destroy his people? Why would God have a heart? Why would God have a motive to even want to think of such things? And me with my wannabe uh, licensed minister self, I raised my hand. I said, well, have you ever thought about that this points to something greater than Moses? This actually points to Jesus, that God wasn't, didn't want to destroy the people, that he actually was going to call an intercessor from the nation of Israel to rise up from the ranks of Israel to die for human sin so that we all may be saved. And just like I heard just what I'm hearing right now, crickets uh, before me. And my professor quietly looked at me and just said, son, sit down. The class pretended to laugh, and my heart was um, torn asunder. You see, um, it was a hard lesson for me that day, but it kind of speaks to what we're talking about here today. It says here um, that I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you you revealed them to infants. You see, in order for us to know God, he has to reveal himself to us. Amen. You can't just know God by reading a book. You can't just know God by coming to church. You can't just know God by wanting to know God. The only way you can know God himself is that God graciously reveals himself. And in this prayer, we get a candid opportunity to see how God has revealed himself to us. Amen. I hope I'm talking to someone here that needs God to reveal himself to you. Maybe you need to be instructed of who God is, or maybe you need to be reminded of who God is. But today, we're going to look at this and understand who God is and why he claims to be um, who he claims to be. I love it because in verse 27, if you look with me, it, it tells us two things about Jesus. It tells us that Jesus alone knows the Father, but it also tells us that Jesus alone uniquely reveals the Father. Look at with me in verse 27. It says, all things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. That's a tough last sentence there, but we're going to tackle it. But before we do, we have to remind ourselves that Jesus alone knows the Father. This, this, this aspect of knowing here is not a, um, a, an aspect of just simply knowing an acquaintance. This Greek word here is um, speaking of having knowledge of the Father in a unique and intimate sense. It is a kind of knowledge that this is the kind of knowledge that only the son, the divine son of, of God possesses. 
This Greek word koinonia speaks to this reality. It's an intimate knowledge and relationship that results from covenantal relationships between two persons. It's an intimate knowledge and relationship that results from covenantal relationship between two persons. And as such, Jesus exclusively um, acknowledged knowledge of the Father is closely connected to another important uh, truth in this passage. That not only does Jesus know the Father, but Jesus also uniquely reveals the Father. He says it quite plainly. He says, verse 27 again, he says, all things have been trusted to me by my father. No one knows a son except the father and no one knows a father except the son. I love this because what Jesus is doing here is he's helping us to see what the Trinity looks like. That Jesus uniquely reveals the father in two specific ways. The first way is this, as the son of God. He, he, he comes to us and he helps us to see that he is the son of the living God. We're talking here about the Trinity. We're talking about the triunity of God. One God has revealed himself eternally as three persons. God's triunity um, has, been, has both unity, but it also has distinction. They coexist together without, either, without any one of the, trini- in the Trinity being compromised. They are equal in essence, but yet distinct in function. Each person is fully and completely God, yet the persons are not yet identical. This is how the pattern of scripture, uh, scripture talks about the Trinity, that God the Father was the one who planned. He's the one that directed. He's the one that, that sends. He's the architect of the blueprint, if you will, that every good and perfect gift, as James 1.17 says, comes from the Father of lights, where there is no shadow or variation of change. That every good plan comes from God. Then you have God the Son. God the Son was sent by the Father. And he is subject to the Father's authority and obedient to the Father's will in every possible way. And then then the third person of the Trinity, you have God the Spirit, who's sent by the Father and the Son to carry out and fulfill the will of Christ and God through his church. You know, there's a lot of false views about the Trinity. There's a lot of things that we can, we can take a good thing and even make it wrong regarding how God has revealed himself. There's a false view called the uh, tritheism, which simply says this, that there are three gods, yet one person. There's a, and in, in this false view, there's an overemphasis on the distinction between the persons of the Trinity, and it thereby neglects the oneness of the nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You hear this explained sometimes, even if people talk about the Trinity as three forms of water. You know, water has three forms, as liquid, gas, and ice. But that's not the correct way for us to look at the Trinity. Colossians 1 says it this way. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him and uh, in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his dwellness full um, dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We don't have three gods that manifest themselves as one person. And the opposite is true as well. We don't have three persons who 
manifests himself as one God. This is something that we call modalism or modalism. Modalism. It says this, modalism loses the distinction between the persons and it claims that God is only one person. Hence, we have three modes of one God. It will be similar to me standing before you as a man, but yet yet saying I'm not just a man, but I'm a father, I'm a son, and I'm a husband. It's not one person who has three different roles. We're talking about three distinct persons unified by the spirit, um, by the spirit of Christ, and you have a, have a covenantal relationship with one another. There's another false view in, uh, called, uh, from Arianism, which denies the full deity of God. Jehovah Witnesses actually believe this. They believe that the Holy Spirit and Jesus are created beings, and therefore they cannot be God, nor have the, divid- the, 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 the deity of God. In John 1, 1 through 3, it answers their, their, uh, their, their assumptions. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Paul continues the argument in Philippians 2. He says this, adopt the same attitude that is of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. You see, Jesus alone uniquely reveals the father, but not just as the son of God, but even as the son of man. You see, while the Son of God implies his deity, his, his connection with God and the great intimacy in the Trinity, the Son of Man implies his humanity. There's an example that I got from um, a professor of mine named Bruce Ware in Southern Seminary that I thought was very helpful, and I want to share with you that picture. It's a picture of a guy swimming across a lake, um, and you can see it kind of here. Um, this is a picture of a, a young man swimming across the Hudson River. I was trying to look for a picture in the Ohio River, but I couldn't get one uh, since it's so close. But I had to go to New York to get one. So here's a guy swimming across the lake. And this guy right here um, in his kayak is his what you call rescue boat. And normally when swimmers want to do a long race, when they want to do a long swim or they want to do a long excursion of swimming, I can't swim, so don't ask me to do this, y'all. Um, I will drown like a rock in the, in the water. I'm working on that. I'm, my, my goal is to swim before my, my youngest son, Luke, but I think I'm losing that race already. Um, this picture dictates exactly what it means for Jesus to be the son of man. That G- God was, Jesus was both God and man in the sense that in his humanity, he was, he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. He actually did the swimming. He actually went across the river. He actually experienced everything that we experience. It's not like um, Jesus got, got tempted and he, he put on his God face and said, okay, God, I'm going to put my God face on. Temptation's coming. Oh, I'm like immutable to, to evil or to temptation. I just, it just won't fall. Jesus in his humanity experienced everything that we experience. He swam across the river, but the difference between Jesus and us is that Jesus had a lifeboat. He didn't use that lifeboat, but if he needed to, he could call on that lifeboat for rescue. That lifeboat was the authority, the power that God had given him. That Jesus said, well, even before he's going on the cross, he says, listen, he says, you're not the one crucifying me. He says, if I want it, I can call 10,000 legions of angels. I can, call, I can call thousands of angels to come down to my rescue if I wanted to, but I'm not going to do that. That's what he's talking about in regards to a lifeboat. 
You see, Jesus was not only the exalted one, he's also human. And as the incarnate son of man, he had a human birth. He had a mama named Mary. He had the daddy named the Holy Spirit, stepdaddy named Joseph. Um, He had a human genealogy. He had a family lineage. You can look in the gospel of Matthew or even the gospel of Luke to look at his lineage or where he came from. But not only that, he had a human body and he was susceptible to limitations. He was susceptible to hunger, to thirst, to growth, to weariness, to fatigue, and even to death. This aspect of the Son of Man is when Jesus calls himself, his favorite title he has for himself, it actually comes from Daniel chapter 7. And any good Jew who knew their Old Testament would know that when Jesus was saying, I am the Son of Man, he wasn't just saying that I'm a son of the humanity, but he was saying something so much more that I am the one who was prophesied in Daniel 7 when Daniel saw one looking like the Son of Man. And as the Son of Man, Jesus is claiming real knowledge of God as well as the ability to reveal that knowledge of God to other people. Jesus is saying that his knowledge of the Father surpasses that of any revelation made before him. In other words, he knows the Father exclusively as he really is. That if you want to know the Father, or you claim to know the Father, you have to know Jesus. He knows the Father uniquely, as he has a knowledge of the Father not shared by any of his contemporaries. Not Elijah Muhammad, not Joseph Smith, not Buddha, not Confucius. Only Jesus uniquely knows the Father. So what does the only way to know the Father through the Son mean? What does that mean? See, Jesus is saying that all things were handed to him by his Father. And thus, he's claiming a relationship to the Heavenly Father that's closer than that hill by anyone else before him, during his time, or even after his time. And this is a good reminder of how we come to know God. You see, we come to go, knowing God comes only by divine grace. As we said before, God has to reveal himself to us for us to know him. But Jesus Jesus thanks here, his praise here, were not on account of the the Father's greatness, but it was on account of the way he made his revelation known. He, he, He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you revealed them to infants. Jesus is praising God because he's because the assumption is this, is that you can't know God on your own. And the the implication is this, is that in his mercy, God has revealed himself to us, which he does through his son, Jesus. You can't know God, but yet God graciously reveals himself to us. You can't go before God because he's holy and he's righteous and we are impure. But God sends his son to die for human sin. God bridges the gap of the impossibility. He does it time and time again, and Jesus is praising him because he's realizing and he wants us to know that God is the one who bridges the the gap of impossibility. It's it's not your works. It's not your deeds. It's not your, 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 the things you do for God. It's Jesus crucified on the cross and raised again for the dead, sent by God himself. Jesus said it was good for him to be crucified because he was sent a helper and he has sent a helper who was building his church even before our very eyes right now. 
You see, experiencing God comes through human faith. It doesn't just come from divine faith, but also comes through human faith. We receive God's truth, not with self-righteousness nor with intellectual pride, but with the humility and the humble trust of a child, acknowledging our total dependence on God the Father. You see, you have a role to play in this too. God has provided, given the provision of salvation, but it's your choice of what you do with that salvation that matters. Notice with me in verse uh, 25, he says this, you have hidden these things. What things is he talking about? He's talking about the reality of the kingdom. He's talking about the reality of the kingdom of God. Now, let's not get it twisted. For, for human beings, and for everybody that was in my class that laughed at me, if you're listening to this, I forgive you. Um, I, I still love you. Give me a call. We can talk about Jesus um, if you're listening to this later. Um, for, for, for human beings, it's always been easy for us. Um, in, in our, in, it's been always been easy for the world's wise ones to trust in their wisdom. You see, their self-sufficiency means that they do not easily come to trust God for salvation. When it says that, that when, God, when, when Jesus says he thanks God that he's hidden these things, it does not mean that God completely concealed the things in question from the world's wise ones. It doesn't mean that if you're wise, you're intelligent, he's put blinders on you. Or anyone who's wise or intelligent can't come to Jesus. That's not true. But what it's saying is this. It is saying that in his plan, it was in God's plan that the way to knowing him is not the way of human excellence or wisdom. Or excuse me, let me rephrase that. It's not exclusively the way of human excellence and or wisdom. Here's what this does mean. It means that all the wise are lost. It does, it does not mean, excuse me, that all the wise are lost and all the babies are saved or all the infants are saved. But what it does mean is that the knowledge of God does not depend on human wisdom or education. See, the point is this. We all come to know God in the same way. We all come to know him by our simple trust in Jesus, not by our intellectual skills, not by our exegesis skills, not by our knowledge of abstruse research methods. Simple trust is open to the humblest of us all to the very babies among us. Love how Paul puts in the first Corinthians. He talks about the word of Christ. He says, first Corinthians chapter one, verses 18 through 19. He says this, he says, for the word of Christ is foolish to those who are perishing, but is the power of God to those who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the age and I will set aside the intelligence and the intellect. Where is the one who was wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Greek, the Jews ask for a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. I think we say amen after that. You see, here's the reality. We can learn a lot about God and still not know God for ourselves. We can know a lot about him. And still yet miss it. 
I love how 2 Timothy 3 puts it. He's, Paul's talking about the end times, and he talks about, he has this one verse that I go to time and time again, not for other people, but for myself. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. He says, um, in the last days, there'll be perilous men. And he says this, he says this about him in verse 7. He says, they're always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. They're always learning, always grasping. Always reading, always tweeting, always researching, but never able to come to the simple knowledge of the truth. If this is you today, I have good news for you. There is rest for you. There is rest for you. There is rest for you who are struggling or who are wanting to find Jesus through intellectual skills and research. There, there, there is hope for you because God has provided that hope through his son, Jesus. He says it in verse 26. He says, yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. He said, this is God's good pleasure. That the way we get to know God is through the power of simplicity and not through, through complex, the complexity that the world wants us to believe. This aspect of good pleasure, um, Jesus is, 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 loving, is, is saying that he is loving enough to make his revelation available to the humblest of his people. Jesus is saying that the Father planned things this way. He never intended that the knowledge of the kingdom and the light should be such that only the uh, profoundly intelligent can find it. Rather, it was his good pleasure or his will that the lowly could find the way, and then if the clever found it, it would be the same way as the lowly did. He says in verse 27b, he makes it uh, plain and clear. He says this, he says, No one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son. Check this out, last part. And anyone to whom the son desires to reveal him. Notice with me in this verse 27b, it says, The only person who knows the father are those to whom the son desires to reveal him. This is a good reminder that revealing God was was a part of Jesus' coming. That Jesus didn't just come as a word from God, but Jesus came as the word of God made flesh. And as such, he has revealed, he has, he has uh, revealed God to man. I love how John 1.14 says, it says the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. That word dwelt is not just dwelt, it's tabernacle. It's setting up, setting up his shop or coming into your hood, if you will. He he is coming into your vicinity where you are. And he came and and he not just came for a little bit. He set up shop among us so that we may observe his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. This is a reminder that we know the father, not through worldly wisdom and understanding, but through the revelation of his son. And our revelation is connected with the will of the son. Did you hear that at the end of verse 27? He says, no one knows a father except the son and anyone to whom the son desires to reveal him. Now, I'm going to get in trouble with some people right here, but that's okay. The son chooses to make the revelation. Now, this brings up the controversial thing on election. Uh, are we elected or, or do we have election or is, is there, um, does God elect certain people? Yes, I will say, yeah, I do believe that. But isn't that part of our choice? Or don't we make a choice for Jesus? Yeah, we do. 
I'll say yes to both of those. You see, I'm not sure which predicates which, man's choice or God's sovereignty, but here's what I do know. I I know four things. I know that man cannot be saved apart from God, that you can't save yourself, that you need a helper, you need a redeemer, you need someone to come rescue you. I do know that. I also know that God does not save anyone against their will. That you have to be a part of the process and accept the free gift that God gives you. I also know that however man's choice, uh, whatever man's choice may be, that God has the ability to step into your life with or without your permission. Ask Saul going on the road to Damascus. He wasn't looking for anybody. He He wasn't looking for Jesus. He was looking to kill Christians. And God stepped in and intervened on his life and met him on that dusty road. I don't care. I don't know if you believe in this or not, but I do know what the Bible teaches is that you may have a choice for Jesus, but Jesus also has a choice for you. And when he decides to reveal himself to you, the only response that you need to have is yes and amen. The last thing I know about this is this, is that whenever man experiences God, our lives are forever changed. We we can't remain the same. We can't. It's impossible. To remain the same, same when you meet the one true and living God. It's a good reminder for all of us that we all have the same resume before God. Regardless if you make the choice or God makes us the choice, we all have the same resume. And here's our resume spelled out for us in 1 Corinthians 1.26. It says this, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human's perspective, not many powerful, not many of a noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something in the world. Only God can do that. Amen. So that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification and redemption in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We all have the same resume before God. We are people in need of grace, regardless if you believe or if you don't believe. Regardless, if you're looking for him, if you're not looking for him, God has every right and he has every purpose over you as a creator of all things. He owns you if you know it or not. And the beauty of it is that you get to know that he owns you through his son, Jesus, that you have a big brother you can look to that not only gives you an example, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives you an equipping to be able to follow and to obey Jesus as Lord. Look with me in verse 28. Look at the invitation that God, that Jesus gives to us as a result of him being the son of God and the son of man. He says this, come to me, come to me. Well, why why come Jesus? Why Why should we come to you? Because Jesus exclusively reveals the father to us. Why should we come to him? Because Jesus is the only one who truly knows the father. Why should we come to him? Because only those whom Jesus reveals the Father will have knowledge of him. Jesus is saying, come to me. Come to me. Notice who he's calling. The the next word, he says, come to me all. I love this. It's not not an exclusive language, language here. Jesus is saying, come to me all. This is a 
universal invitation where none of the troubled, those who are troubled, are omitted. I love what my former pastor used to say about this. He talked about evangelism, and he used to always say this. He, he actually quoted from his former pastor, Dr. Ken Fentress, used to say this. He said, I get them lost before I get them saved. <laughs> I love that. He says, I get them lost before I get them saved. What is he talking about? He's saying, listen, before I can tell you your need for a Savior, I first got to let you know about your need. <laughs> I can't just talk to you about Jesus. Jesus and what he's done, if you don't understand what Jesus has done in regards to eternity and in in regards to your personal sin, debt before God himself. There's a great article I read actually this week that I want to share with you. It's it's from um, to reach. It was called to reach unsaved Christians. It was written March 5th, 2019 um, from a pastor. Um, He talks about the need for um, preaching the gospel in our context. And he talks about that specifically in the Bible Belt. He says this, he quotes this, he says, In the Bible Belt, many people think they're Christians, but have no concept of the severity of sin, the necessity of repentance, the message of grace, or the overall message of the gospel. They think they're just fine with God, and God is fine with them because they aren't atheists and that they've been to church before as a kid. It's almost like you have to help them get lost so they can actually be saved. They believe in God, but they do not believe their sin has done anything to separate them from him or need uh, or they need Jesus or they need the uh, excuse me or to need the Jesus they claim to believe in. He continues to say cultural Christianity admires Jesus, but doesn't think he is needed except to take the wheel in a moment of crisis. The God of cultural Christianity is the big man upstairs. And whether or not he is holy and people have sinned against him is irrelevant. Words such as hope, faith, and belief hang on the walls of living rooms as decorations. But the actual words of God only come around when Psalm 23 is read at a loved one's funeral. I love that. That's a good word. That's a good word for us. That again, Having a form, Second uh, Timothy three talks about it. it says that he ha- we we as as a people have a form of godliness. We can have a form of a godliness, but denying its very power. Jesus quickly explains what Christianity is for us. We have an explanation that it is a radical difference. Christianity is a radical difference from every other religious system in the world. You can't, you can't compare Christianity to any other world system because, first of all, Christianity is not a religion. Religion tells you you have to do something in order to be accepted. You got to pray five times a day. You got to fast. You got to go overseas. You have to do, 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 do in order to be accepted. But the way that Christianity explains is just the opposite. It's not what you have to do for God. It's actually what God has done for you. And therefore, the world, religious world systems, while they spell, they spell their understanding of, of a relationship with God as D-O, Christianity spells it D-O-N-E, done. It is done. It's a finished work that Christ has presented to us. Not an incomplete work. Not something that you have to come alongside and fix or doctrine up or pretty up. Christ has given us his finished work. What does it mean to come to Jesus? It's a doctrine of imputation. It's, it's, it's that you, got, you give God all that you have and he gives all that he has to you. We give all that we have to Jesus. 
That's what it means to come to him. The full weight of your sin, your propensity towards sin, rebellion, and disobedience. Bring all of it to Jesus. Don't hide anything from him. He knows it all. And yet he's chosen to die for that very sin that he knows. We give all that we have to Jesus. We give him our full weight of our sins. We give him our utter inability to obey God. You can't obey God apart from God. But not only that, not only do we give all that we have to Jesus, Jesus gives all that he has to us. He gives us full pardon of our sins so that we can rest with peace before God. And he gives us his complete ability to obey, which means we work in peace with God. Let me go back to that that picture really quick of the guy swimming. (laughs) I love this picture because it reminds me, and I hope it reminds you of the grace of God. You see, Jesus didn't stop swimming. He swam this whole lake. Well, excuse me. If this was Jesus (laughs) and his represent, this guy represented Jesus, Jesus finished the work for us. He didn't stop swimming so we can rest and we don't have to finish the course that he's already done. We can look to him as the one who fully pardons our sins. But not only that, Jesus, as he swam, as I said earlier, he didn't touch the boat. He, he didn't go to the lifeline and use his d- d- divine powers in order to, to, to do revelatory things or to save him from the temptations of the world. But although he didn't touch the boat, guess what? He invites us to touch it. He invites us to go to, to, to look to God, to look to the power of the cross, to look to what he's done. He didn't touch the boat so we can touch it. Sometimes Christians, we're too strong for our own good. And that's why Jesus in verse 28 calls us this. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is a good reminder that the secret of rest is knowing God. To know God is to know rest. Godlessness is equivalent to restlessness. And godliness is equivalent to restfulness. Mark 2, 27 puts it this way. Jesus said, man was not created for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was created for man. Next week, Nick's going to preach on this, so I'm not going to go too much into it. But simply what it's saying is this, is that rest was not created as an afterthought for man. Rest was actually created for man. And what is the rest that he calls us to? Look with me in verse 29. Take my yoke. Take my yoke and learn from me. Notice Jesus is the one who promises rest, not the Father. It's not another human being. We look to Jesus, and Jesus is inviting his people to follow him, to serve him, and to learn from him. Notice what Jesus invites us to. He invites us to a holy exchange. He says, give me the yoke of weariness and burdensomeness, and I will give you the yoke of rest. In Jesus' context, Jesus here is speaking of um, the yoke, the wearisomeness and the burdensome that he's referring to speaks to the scribes and the Pharisees putting heavy burdens on people's back. The, the Bible puts it this way. It described them as uh, people who tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move. You see, God graciously invites us away from legalism. 
He, he graciously invites us from legalism. What is legalism? Legal, legal, legalism is this. It's trying to please God by the flesh. It, it's trying to please God by kiss, keeping a, a list of laws and rules that we think will earn us God's favor and keep us in good standing with him. Legalism says you are what you do. It, it, is, it bases your spiritual identity on one's performance. It makes rule keeping the basis for your spiritual victory. It, 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 legalism says it is not the presence of rules, um, but the wrong attitude towards the rules. Legalism is having a wrong attitude towards the rules that have been set before us. It is signs to those rules and authority that God never meant them for them to have. And it's always motivated by guilt and not by God's race. Legalism says, um, I have to do this, or I ought to do this, or I should do this. But it never says, I want to do this, or I get to do this, or what a privilege it is to do, you fill in the blank. Jesus is graciously calling the people to, to take off the yoke of the law and to put on the yoke that he provides. Notice that Jesus graciously invites us towards himself, the law keeper, the one who has swam across the river, who's done it perfectly. You see, the problem is not the law itself. The law of God is good. Every word of it. The law's purpose is to reveal sin, and it does so by giving sin the character of a violation. I love how Galatians 3.24 puts it. It says the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. You see, the law acts like an x-ray or CAT scan. It, it reveals the tumor of sin, but it's powerless to heal them. The law doesn't exist to make us better. The law exists to show us what is wrong and how helpless we are so that we can run to the law, give the one who's kept the law perfectly. So we can run to Jesus. Stop looking to the law to, to be your standard for righteousness. If you kept or done certain things or haven't done certain things. I think obedience is very important. Don't get me wrong. But don't think your obedience earns you merit or favor or grace before God. You earn merit and favor and grace before God because of what Christ has done and because what you, what, how you are surrendering and living your life before him and walking with him in community, um, no, with knowing his word, knowing his people, and being led by his spirit. Notice we invite us to verse 29. He says, learn from me. This is an invitation to learn through instruction. To commit oneself to Jesus means that you're committing yourself to a learning process. It's a, it's a, it's a lifelong process. He says, for I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Notice what he says. He says, I am humble in heart. What, what he's saying here is that Jesus is not pretending. He's really lowly. The heart represents the center of his being, all that he is, the innermost part of his being. Jesus is meek and lowly, and as a result, those who come to him will truly find rest in him. The rest for your soul means those who bear Christ's yoke will no rest at the center of their being. Notice this, that Jesus doesn't call us away from yoke. All of us are carrying yokes. What Jesus is calling us to is an exchange of yokes. To take off the yoke of weariness and burdensome, that, with burdens that we care all the time, 
and replace it with the yoke that Jesus calls it to. Jesus is not calling you to any lesser work. He's calling you to work, but he's calling you to work in his strength. There's a difference. What I want to do and, uh, right now is I actually want to have a time of prayer. Um, I will want to invite anyone who may feel restless, who may feel that you need rest and asking God for rest. Maybe you haven't had that, had that prayer answer. I would love to open up this time for you to come forward and to pray for you as a community. I'm not asking you to come up because I'm trying to embarrass you. I'm, I'm, I wanted you to come up because we all want to and need to find rest in Jesus, that he is the only one who can provide that rest as the son of God and as the son of man. There's no other place to find rest except in the crucified son of God. So if that's you right now, I would love for you to come forward for a time of prayer. If it's just me and somebody else praying, one other prayer person praying, I'm fine with that. If it's just me praying by myself, that's fine too. But if you want to come forward, I invite you to come, um, even right now, um, to come and pray. So I'll give us a couple of seconds. You can just come make your way forward. We'll gather here in front, and uh, I'll say a word of prayer for us before we go into communion. So feel free to feel. Feel uh, free to come when you're ready, if you're ready. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle. C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.